every business should strive to do this by putting names behind them and putting specific conversations around them, people start to realize that these are actually super important um, and they're worthy of discussion, they're worthy of prioritizing. And by like, you have to put that name to it first. Otherwise people are like, yeah, totally. Like, of course we care about our customers. Of course we wanna have conversations with them. Hello, everyone. This is Ellen, the producer of The Black Line Between Sales and Marketing, with Doug Davidoff, CEO of Imagine Business Development, and Mike Donnelly, CEO of Seven Cents. Let's get started. Hello, and welcome to this edition of The Black Line Podcast. I got to tell you that, that I'm actually extraordinarily excited about today's conversation um, because we get to talk to literally my favorite blogger. And, and, wow. and that might, that might surprise. You. I don't know if you remember this or not, but I actually, I think the first direct conversation that we had was uh, a Twitter conversation as I had been reading the blogs that you were doing on HubSpot. And it was just good stuff that, that made me smarter, made my team smarter, changed how we were doing things. And, you know, from that moment on, I've been following you. And um, so I'm excited to, to finally have this conversation and That's share so nice. it with everybody Thanks, else. <laughs> so, so with that as an introduction, because um, we like to set expectations low for people. <laughs> Thank you. I hope I live up to it. <laughs> with, with, with that as an uh, introduction, why don't you just tell everyone a little bit about who you are, what you're doing, and kind of how you got here. Totally. So um, hi, everyone. I'm Ginny Minio. I am the director of platform at NextView Ventures. Um, I live in Boston. We're a uh, venture capital firm here, and we invest in companies like at the very, very, very early stages. Um, so my job here is part marketing for the firm. Happy to talk through some of that later. Um, I also work with our portfolio companies on things that would be helpful to them, usually on the marketing side, sometimes on the hiring um, and fundraising side as well. Um, but before that, I was at HubSpot and I was there for about four years helping build out their content marketing and acquisition playbook. Um, so happy to talk content, happy to talk marketing and you know how those two things work together. So, so you were, you were at HubSpot for four years. Yeah. You, you ran the blog. Did you mm -hmm. not? I did. I did. Um, I so let's managed. have a little humble brag. Let's have a little humble brag. What was the traffic that was generated at the peak when, uh, when you were there? Sure. Uh, so I joined in 2013 and we were at a million and a half visitors uh, per month when I joined. Um, and that was pretty steady. And the first, call it six, seven months I was there, we were in this kind of rut. Um, about six, seven months later, um, we started putting together a new strategy and I started taking over editing the blog. Um, from that point, we ended up within six months hitting two million, six months after that hitting three million monthly viewers. Um, so it was really, really speedy growth, especially on this like massive, massive channel. Um, so it was definitely an intense, like each month was crazy <laughs> just trying to hit these like more and more aggressive numbers. But, you know, the team's been doing it long after I've been on that, that team. Um, I think the last I heard that they're at maybe 5 million monthly visitors, um, which is insane. <laughs> I, I, I just want everyone to stop for a moment. And no matter how good you're, how good you feel like you are, I want you to think that, that, that Jenny literally just said, we were at a million and a half visitors a month. We were kind of in a rut. 
So good, yeah. good problem to have. <laughs> That's true. That is true. <laughs> There's perspective, everybody. It doesn't matter what you're doing. You're saying if I could just get to ten thousand visitors, I. <laughs> Well, now, you know, I would take those numbers today. I would. Yeah. I'll take them. <laughs> Already to, to kick it off and then get, get the conversation going, you, sure. I guess it was a couple weeks ago, wrote um, a, a great post um, on the future of content marketing and, or I should say really the future of content more, more than it was say content marketing per se. Yeah. Um, so you've got that. And then you also have what I still think is probably like if someone can read only one blog. In, in their life as a marketer. Um, the blog that you wrote on quality versus quantity is like the number one blog on, on my list of everything. It, 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 there's Thank so you. much in there. <laughs> That's so kind. Oh my um, goodness. <laughs> I, 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 you, Mike's shocked. <laughs> uh, I'm like, why the hell did you, but so, so, I mean, that, that, that was a really landmark post that, that looked at the idea of, of, of types of posts, um, in its own way, it was very much, I think, of that, you know, where is content today and, and the future? And so to kind of kick that off, I, you know, I guess it's probably about a four-year period, three to four-year period between those two posts. Yeah, definitely. From your perspective, what's changed around content, content marketing, that whole world today? What are, what are the big themes that, that people should be aware of? Totally. Um, so... I think the, I'll give some context on the, the original post I wrote about the quality versus quantity. Um, that came out in 2015. Um, so I do think lots has changed there. And that analysis was run on a very, very mature site. Um, for context, for people listening who don't know much about HubSpot's blog, um, we had been blogging for 10 years at that point. So that's like, I analyzed maybe five or 6,000 blog posts in total. <laughs> I just so want to like, go on record that I started blogging before HubSpot. I just want to get that out of the way. <laughs> You're like, I just want to set the record straight, make yep, sure people just, know I was they here. They followed first. me. They followed me. I'm glad I could uh, provide that. <laughs> you paved the way. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that like, even at that time, most people didn't have a blog for that long and especially such a focused company blog that was super mature. So it was a lot about optimizing what we already had. We had tons of data to work with compared to many different businesses that I work with today that are, you know, just starting from scratch and trying to figure out, you know, how they should be designing their content marketing and acquisition strategies. Um, so I think at the time, um, 2015, Google still was like the channel, it's the channel. You know, it was, you had to blog to be able to get traffic from Google. And if you didn't, like, good luck. <laughs> um, so I think that that has changed a ton. Um, Google is still massively important, but I think some of the changes that they've made to their user interface, the way that their algorithm works, where they're, you know, offering up these featured snippets, um, voice search is becoming even more important. Um, for marketers, I think, content has to change as well. And so that's what I was talking about in my new post, looking at you know, the technological changes that have happened on Google and Facebook, like two of the biggest platforms that people are using to market their businesses. Um, and that you know, it's no longer enough to try to like pick these niche keywords, blog a ton about all of these niche keywords, and then get traffic at the end of the day, like just by a matter of hustling. Um, you really have to think strategically about which channels are going to be good for you and your business. You have to think about, you know, your customers 
and how they're going to be looking for information. It might not be through Google anymore, or they might just trust whatever feature snippet comes up first. <laughs> um, so it's just a different, it, it, the, the channels are still relatively similar. Um, the, the playbook for working with them has changed. Did you see the post that came out on Moz yesterday, um, zero result SERPs? No, no. Tell me about it. So, so a post came out yesterday. Um, Google has launched a large-scale experiment removing organic results from a small set of searches with definitive answers, such as the one for what time is it in Seattle. Um, and, and so what it's doing is, you know, you have the little knowledge boxes that, that um, I think the number in there says something like once – like the first page gets 89% of searches, so mm -hmm. the first 10, but once a knowledge box goes on there, um, the, everything below that drops by like 68%. So that knowledge wow. box has had a tremendous impact there. Yeah. And now this is getting to the point where, um, you know, if there's, a, if there's that definitive answer, there's the, there's the single block, and mm -hmm. then there's a show all results below that. Yeah. So that, that strikes me to be very much in alignment with, with what you're talking about. Is that totally, yeah, no, that's, I mean, think about how many marketers have tried to rank for simple searches that people have been searching for. Like that is the premise of building, you know, an SEO strategy is find out what people are searching for and surface them the answers. But if Google's going to be circumventing you and taking that content and surfacing it to people directly within search, then you've got to either figure out new search terms that they haven't, you know, surfaced the answers for already and try to rank for those or look for other channels. It's probably some sort of mix. And so Jenny, one, one thing and that I think about is what do you think led to this problem? Mm. Why, why are Google, Facebook, Twitter, you know, whatever it might be, why are these channels investing so much time and energy into, uh, obviously they want to create a better user experience, but they're, they're obviously investing a tremendous amount. Um, what, why do you think that, why do you think that is? Um, I'll give you guys one gesture for it. It's money. It's money. Right. <laughs> like they're trying yeah. to make money from these. These are for profit. Show entities. me the money. Exactly. Exactly. Like they're ad driven businesses. They have to have people interacting on their platforms, not off their platforms, but on their platforms and clicking through on the ads that they are surfacing. So, you know, the getting organic content on the platforms helps these platforms grow and attracts more people there that they can then be advertised to. But it's not surprising to me that as these businesses have grown bigger and bigger and bigger, they're requiring to grow their revenue as well. And they're competing against one, one, one another for the same audience and like share of that audience's time. Like, of course, they're going to try to keep you right on that platform versus sending you elsewhere. So I have an idea to fix content okay. on the business side. And I actually yeah. came up with the idea yesterday. So it's Ooh. brand new. It's fresh. Yeah. Let's really, hear it. Really good. Um, and to some degree, it, 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 it's a result of, of this. Um, mm -hmm. Of, of, of the Moz post that I just shared. I realized no one actually understands what I'm pointing to. So <laughs> I probably should explain that. It's in the show notes, guys. Come on. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> um, I think content would be better today, would be far, far better today. And, and the way to fix content tomorrow is we, the people who are creating content shouldn't know where things rank. 
Mm-hmm. They shouldn't be out. They should not be allowed to look at a search ranking report. They should not be able to look at a keyword report, a this report, or that report. They, they, they need to know, you know, results and, and, and things that are happening. But I think that, I think the problem getting to what you said, Mike, is that we started realizing that, hey, if we rank on Google here, if this is the Facebook algorithm there, if this is the that there, we, we start we started looking to the metric became the target, the metric became mm. objective, yeah. not the byproduct. Mm. Totally. So, so you so think no metrics? Talking? No, no, not, see, not no metrics. Cause, cause no metrics goes, I mean, I'm a data guy and, and it's like, yeah. But, like, <laughs> yeah. So, so if I never knew, you know, it's its own weird way. Google as, as a company that provides services, it's frustrating. Google stopped mm-hmm. telling you what you rank for. Yep. Right. It's not, or I'm sorry. They stopped telling you what, yeah, they stopped giving you the term that, that, that was searched. Yeah. Um, and I actually, you know, as a, as a business that provides SEO services, yeah. I didn't like it, but as a content person, I liked it. And, and one of the things that I've noticed for my blog and, and for my company, the posts that I rank the highest at, that, that actually not, that, that then also drive traffic. Cause I have learned that you can rank for, you can, you can get really good at, you know, Hey, you're number one. Yeah. Nobody else is looking. <laughs> yeah, totally. Right. But the ones that I rank the best were the ones that have the best results. I wasn't thinking about a keyword. I wasn't thinking about search. I wasn't thinking about anything. It was frankly, I was riled up. I was mm-hmm. upset about something. I was frustrated about something. I was dealing with a problem for me, for a client or something like that. And yeah. I just started to, to write about how to deal with that problem. And, um, and then the, you know, the, the funny thing about that was not only did it end up ranking for search, it, it got social, it mm-hmm. got retweeted, it got all those things. And, and, and so I think we've become so metric obsessed that, that we make the metric, the objective, mm rather than realizing the metric is the byproduct of the objective. Yes. And I think what Google has done extraordinarily well and why I think Google is doing this is if you ask me what time is it in Seattle? Mm-hmm. I do not want, I don't want you, well, well, the answer could be 1051 or it could be, yes. time is a concept in Seattle that's similar to, or it could, you know, it's like, I don't, I don't want. A I don't need a physics lesson. Like right. I just need the time. Yeah. Right? And, and, and so, yeah. Like think back to how metric obsessed things were at HubSpot. Think, yeah. how did you balance that? Because um, I've seen a lot of blogs and, and I would say that this applies to HubSpot as well. And I think HubSpot yeah. still has a great blog. Um, but I, I see a lot of blogs that, that, that have, I, I feel like they, they've lost their plot mm. because it's about traffic more than it's about really being relevant or putting forth a point of view. And so it drives metrics, but it, but it just also creates a whole lot of noise. Yes. But that's, but that I think goes into the point that Vinny made earlier, which is, you know, this, this quantity versus quality thing. I mean, as more and more marketers try to game the system, Google's not going to ever tell anybody how their algorithms truly work. I mean, we, we see the same thing with the way that they work with, email, their promotions tab, whether or not you're getting put in the spam folder. Now, there's certain things that we know to be true about the way just email systems work in general, but the same holds true with their SEO. Yeah, okay, 
write a bunch of keywords, things like that. But I'm sure Google started to recognize that and say, okay, a lot of crappy content is being surfaced because people have gamed the system. So let's go change our algorithm so that people can no longer game the system the way that they were, because we want to actually be surfacing better content than just content that has all these great keywords in it. So um, I don't know. That's, that's kind of my perspective is, is again, we're dealing with this quality versus quantity uh, issue. So I will offer up an alternative viewpoint here, just from a consumer. That's what this is about. If we can't see what's funny, let's go. I, so I think as a content creator and a consumer, I'm 100% with you. Like, I want content that's very relevant to me. It should not just be gaming the system sort of thing. Um, on the other hand, that's putting a lot of trust in Google and in Facebook to set the right rules on their algorithm. And you really like... It, the transparency that I think uh, Facebook is now starting to do, given like recent news events, like that's good. We want to know how these algorithms work and how they're surfacing the content that we see every single day. So I think that like on the flip side, like while I don't love that, <clears throat> excuse me, that people are gaming it just to game it and getting traffic just to like get traffic, I do think that there's something to be said for the transparency of the algorithms that they owe people who are using them, both as consumers and as marketers. So I don't know so, to about that. So, so, so I, I agree with that and, it, and, it, and we're, we're, it, it'll circle, the, I promise we'll get, we'll get to an arc where, where this will actually make sense and, and, and become actionable, at least, yeah. at, at least for me it will. Yeah. Um, at least one, if one person benefits from this podcast. Doug, if you benefit, that's, that's all that matters. And, and of course, I was going to say that one person is probably going to be me. So uh, the, so I'm, I'm actually going to separate, and I might be naive here. I'm actually going to separate Google and Facebook because, um, uh, so Mike, I'm going to take a little bit of issue with, with what you said that, you know, that we're never going to know what Google's algorithm is. And, 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 and here's what I mean by that. I think in a lot of ways we're making this harder than it is. Um, agree. I, I, I don't, I don't yeah. disagree. I know you're going to, I think you're going to agree with, with, with what I'm going to say, but my, my, here, here's my point. And this is what I'll give Google credit for as best I can tell. This is the one place where, where, where they've stuck to their do no evil. Mm -hmm. I don't believe Google itself does no evil, but I believe that the thing that I give them immense props for is that they've never forgotten that I get to use their search for free. I would say if, if it's free, you're the, you're the product, you're not the customer. Totally. But, but they don't treat it that way. They, they realize that, that they need to be relevant to me. I, I'm the arbiter and, and, as, and I'm sure there are exceptions and I'm sure someone's gonna you know, ring us up on this and tell me about all the things that, that Google does to screw them. I'm, I'm not saying it's 100%. But at the end of the day, what Google has tried to do and they've been limited by technology is to answer the very simple question. You're looking for a piece of information. We want to find you the best piece of information as fast as possible, as, as not disruptive as possible. And so I actually just wrote this in a, um, in a Facebook group today. And I said, look, you know, someone was explaining this whole complicated thing. And I just said, you know what? If you want to make an impact, if you want to build an audience, start writing and communicating to people and reaching out, whatever you do, what would you do if they were your best friend and you had nothing at stake. There was, it, you, there was no self-interest for you, right? Would, would you do that on LinkedIn? And if you would, then do it. Wh whether it's best practice or not, 
and, and then, you know, part of that is, Mike, what you would do with your best friend is going to be different than what I would do with my best friend, even if that person were the same. And, and, and so I think that I think that that's what the Google algorithm has always been trying to do and is beginning getting closer and closer to that. Yeah. And so I'm not saying no metrics. I'm not saying no metrics at all. And it, it, I'm the old guy here. Right. I'm, I'm the I'm the get off my line guy, get off the lawn guy <laughs> on, on this on this show. Um, I remember the days when you didn't get instantaneous feedback on, okay, we put this out today, what happened, right? And, and so you had to look at, at a, met, there was, and frankly, there was no data in there, right? Mm -hmm. There was no, you never got a direct mail report that said, you know, this letter got opened here and that letter, right? but you could begin to see the ebb and flow. And, and because you didn't have that data, I think, marketers were more marketers because they were trying to, and actually let's be more specific, marketing communications. Mm -hmm. Communicators were more communicators because the question was, how do I connect to an influence with this person? And I have to think broadly and, and I'm going to triangulate my way there as opposed to, Oh wait, if we can rank for this thing here. Totally. And, and that's what my point is, is how do we get, I think with all content, how do we get out of this obsession with metrics? Because you can, again, you can rank on Google and lose money. Yeah. And you can not rank on Google and make a lot of money. How do you get out of this obsession to metrics? And, and how do you measure impact? Yeah. So, that, so that you stay focused on impact and let all the other things happen. And again, that's not to say to ignore them. I'm just saying build a firewall. But, but how, how do you get, how do we bring the content back to content marketing? Yeah, I think truthfully, it's a lot of getting back to understanding your customers and what they really want. And then having the courage to talk to them as if you would, you know, face to face. And like that courage like, is real. Like you have to be able to take a strong point of view on something. Um, you have to, you know, let's say your audience like really needs a lot of handholding. You have to have the courage to take the time to explain it to them. Um, it really depends on your audience, but I do think that like you have, there's like a courage element there, whether it's like being more transparent with how your business works, um, taking the time to not have to hit a certain metric every single day or every single week, um, to create a piece of content really addresses their needs. Um, that's very hard. It's very, very hard to find, but I, I agree with you. I think it's necessary. Two questions. Let's, let's, let's go behind the scenes. So you are yeah. at next view. Mm -hmm. You're, you're, I mean, I know some of the companies in the portfolio are, are, you know, amazing part yeah. of the Boston mafia. Mm -hmm. uh, I get it. I hear it. Um, <laughs> yet, you know, and a lot of this space, and I'm assuming that, you know, part of your job is you're, you're, you're kind of, you're, you're advising them on that content side and that communication side based on what you said earlier. I'm, I'm assuming that's the case. Yeah. So, so you have somebody who, who's, you know, who's built their idea. It's, it, it's their child um, in the space that, that you guys fund a lot. I'm sure that that founder base, you know, there's probably a heavy influence of engineers who mm -hmm. got brought up in this idea of, you know, you have to, to figure it out it had you know there's right and wrong it works it doesn't work which is not the mentality of content yeah um and not the mentality for courage yeah right so how do you work with teach provoke 
how do you get these people who like their entire life at, at massive scale is based upon this and, and to do what needs to be done, they've got to do something that's foreign to them, that courage thing to yeah. embrace content. How do you get them on board with that so that it can happen in the portfolio companies that you work with? Totally. I think that's a great question. Um, so a couple things. One is a lot of the companies that we invest in, like this is the first venture money they've ever taken. Um, so, so they are often tech heavy in terms of uh, organizational um, hires, but they're often um, on the marketing side, like very focused on building out and establishing a market. Um, so they have that engineering and tech lens, but they actually are very driven on um, more about like, who is the customer? What is the demand of that? Like, what do they actually want? Um, and the companies that we work with actually might have a different point of view of reaching a target customer that might be, you know, misunderstood. Um, so I actually would say that like, they are pretty awesome coming in about marketing and understanding customer demand. Um, that said, I do spend time talking through whether content even is a fit for them at the early stage. Um, cause you know, it takes a lot as you guys both know to publish consistently, to build out like a narrative arc for your brand. Like that is really, really important to do. And it takes a lot of time and you definitely, for some startups that makes sense to do right at the start. You know, it's really core to how their business grows. Um, one of our portfolio companies is Drift, for example. Like they built out content from the start. They needed to. Drift. Have you heard of <laughs> But like they're a perfect example. Like they they had content baked in. Um, but I've talked to some other portfolio Can you do companies. me a favor? Can you do me a favor with Drift? The next time you talk with David Cancel can okay. you tell him to come out of his shell a little bit? Can you tell him like, I mean, really? Let's so you're have so a point shy. Let's have a point of view. Tell Dave Garrett, you know, let's have, let's let's get that point of view out there. You guys are a little bit wishy-washy as to what you're doing. So if, if you can, we'll that. see what I can do. We'll see what I can do. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I think for some for some startups, it's not necessary to start. Um, but once they've figured out, you know, the right way to be reaching their customer. Um, they get, generate some sort of traction, then it's the point that they need to evaluate whether content is, is right for their business. Um, so I think that like that cur courage element of content sometimes is important to instill with certain startups. Sometimes it's not based on the stage that they're at, the type of customer and that sort of thing. And so if content isn't the right strategy, what, you know, what is, and even for the ones that it is the right content strategy, I mean, obviously Drift has done a phenomenal, I mean, just, second to none job getting their messaging out. They're kind of just, they're everywhere. Uh, DG has just done an amazing job there. But I mean, what, what, what is some of your advice to folks like that? Hey, we're just getting started, but Hey, if content's not the right strategy for you, what, from your point of view, what are you seeing? What is the right strategy or what is the right, the right channel? Yeah, I think that's a good question though. I would challenge anyone who's asking that like, it has, whatever the right answer is, it's likely not right for each individual company. Like you have to understand who your customer is, how your customer wants to interact with you before you go in and say like, oh, it's email, oh, you know, it's events, oh, it's PR. <laughs> um, I think you have to like really, really get back to what your customer needs. Um, and that sounds, you know, lofty and like, of course you want to do it, but like just call up 10 of your customers email them, talk to them for 15 minutes, 
Spend a week doing that. You'll find out so much more information about them and like be much more able to figure out how to adjust your marketing strategies as a result. Um, I think without that kind of knowledge, you're just wasting time, to be honest. It, it sounds to me like NextView is, is a little bit of a different um, player in this, in this space, in the VC space, because I got to tell you, as we've worked with more companies that have gotten funding, I think there's two tremendously dangerous things that are happening, but really three tremendously dangerous things that are happening on the VC side. A, money's being thrown. It's just dumb. Okay, yeah. there's a lot of there's a lot of talk about that, and we talked about that a couple podcasts ago. Um, I, I'm shocked every day how much money gets thrown to companies that, that that clearly demonstrate they have absolutely no idea who their customer is, what problem they're solving, or anything. So, I mean, you're in trouble before before it even starts. Yeah. And then the third thing is, I think that the mistake that happens is that um, the company gets the funding and takes the funding as validation. Mm. Right. Yes. Says, oh, well, if yes. we didn't have the strategy all baked in, then they wouldn't have given us any money. Totally. So from this side, what, what advice would you give seeing what happens? And, and, and it, it certainly sounds like NextView um, really does filter that in, in terms of um, who, who you guys take into the portfolio. But for, for somebody, whether they're in your portfolio or outside, they've just raised money. What, what's the advice from, from the shows that you've seen to be careful about, to be aware of as a result. Okay, you just got your funding, great. Now keep this in mind. Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. Um, the biggest thing that I see is that companies think that like once they get funding, especially on the seed side, it's like, oh yeah, we're, we're done, we're good. <laughs> and kind of like, while you should take a breath, fundraising is really hard. It's really, really hard. While it seems like, you know, there's more money being thrown around. Founders will tell you, like, it is still really difficult, especially if you don't fit the, like, traditional founder profile. Like, fundraising is really, really hard. Like, take a breath, go, you know, go away for a couple days, come back fresh, you know, after you've closed your round. Um, but I, my biggest advice would be to be really focused on the specific things you need to do after seed, after you, you raise your seed round, to be able to get to your A. And a lot of founders just kind of like, they take their money and they're like, okay, this is great. Um, I'm gonna do all these different things. Um, but as most people know, in a resource constrained environment, like you can't do everything. You can't hire for everything. Um, so I would urge founders who are raising, after they finish raising, like be very laser focused on what you're gonna do with that money. Maybe it's building out your engineering and tech stack. Don't focus on marketing. Don't worry about hiring a marketer. Um, you know, bootstrap that side of the business yourself. Um, maybe it's the opposite. Maybe you have to generate more demand and like stop hiring engineers and product people. Um, but be really laser focused on what you're going to use that money for and stick to that. Um, I think that can be really, really hard, especially if you've raised money from notable investors and investors are always going to want more, 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 faster, faster, faster. Um, but being laser focused on, uh, usually it's finding that like product market fit right after seed stage, um, being laser focused on the essential things you need to hit to be able to do that, um, versus, you know, getting caught up in, you know, fancy office things or, you know, the, the lunches for everybody or swag or things like that. Um, be laser focused on what you need to do after seed and don't get distracted. 
So you're saying the pool table is not the first thing that should be. <laughs> not the first, maybe the second, maybe the second. King you know, Kong table. The, 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 keg, the kegerator is the first thing, dog. Oh, that's true. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> so, so let's be courageous and transparent. Um, Mike and I were talking two nights ago. Yeah. Um, and Mike deals with marketers all the time. And Mike was just bitching about how difficult and myopic marketers are. Okay, now this is the podcast that he's not going to promote, right? <laughs> and, 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 and we got into it. Um, I said some, though, not all. So. Not all. Okay, but a lot. How about a lot, right? And, 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 <laughs> and you know, we got in an argument about sales and marketing and, 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 yeah. and, and all, you know, and salespeople do this. And I was like, no, salespeople are just as bad and just as myopic and just as crazy and all. And I, but but what I what where we came down to was it doesn't even make sense to have the conversation that we were having because it's not their fault. And 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 what I mean by that is the fault I believe is at the executive level. Mm-hmm. The fault yeah. I believe is is that the mandates, the metrics, the approach, and those things um I, I may be smart, brilliant, and intelligent, but if someone is telling me we've got to get trade show leads, then then I'm going to have to go out and get trade show leads. Yeah. So having been, uh, and I'm going to share a little bit of, of, of what led to that um, quantity, quality versus quantity um, post, which still blows me away that you guys did that. Um, but having been in that marketer role, and I, and I remember one of the times that I did talk to you, you told me about some of the things and some of the challenges of, of bringing the idea and, and, and getting people to buy into it. So I'm a marketer, I'm at a comp- whether it's a SaaS company funded or not, I'm working at an engineering company. You, you know, you, you've seen them all. How do I have that? How do I get my higher ups? How, how do I talk to them to get them to understand, to allow me to have the space to build that, that presence and to build that message and to build content the right way? Yeah, totally. It's hard because it takes a lot of time. And especially if people are skeptical about it, um, there's a lot of legwork to do there. Um, I think it depends on your, like who you're going to, you know, if you're going to, if, if you're an entry level employee trying to convince a manager and there's thousands of people above them, like good luck. Um, if you are talking to an executive and try to convince an executive, um, my advice would be to get in their shoes, just like you would if you're trying to sell someone on literally anything else, try to understand what their day-to-day is. What metrics are they measured on? What does their boss go to them on? If it's revenue, you need to speak that language and you need to pull data on what content might be able to do for them. Um, my, I'm a big fan of pitching executives and saying, okay, I think that this is gonna work. I wanna run an experiment. Give me four weeks and 15% of my time to prove that I can do this. Here are the metrics that I think I can hit in that amount of time frame. If I can do that, I want your blessing for me to blow this up into a bigger strategy. Don't go in and say like, I want, I want the moon. I wanna like completely you know, build a content strategy from scratch. I wanna you know, take all of my time and redesign the whole website. Like don't do that. An executive is not gonna give you buy-in there. But what they might say is, hey, if you wanna spend 15 to 20% of your time to prove to me that this might be able to work, go for it. Then you better go deliver on it. You know, like if it's going to take a little bit more than 15 to 20% of your time, like put in the nights and weekends to make it happen and, and prove out that this can work. 
Because here's the thing is you might be wrong. Like you, you might be operating on assumptions that, you know, are, are faulty or maybe your customers aren't, aren't willing to work on the content side or, you know, this can work for any sort of acquisition strategy, but like running some sort of experiment to see, will this work? Will this won't work? Um, and then bringing those results to your boss is going to be the most effective way to sell them on it. Um, I found it to be very successful. Will, will this work? Will this successfully not work? Um, I think, I mean, I think that's fantastic advice, Jenny. And I mean, we've seen that we've, we've talked to a lot of very successful people. And I mean, right there, Doug, the example that you just gave Jenny is exactly what Caputo did with building out the agency partner program at HubSpot. He said, Hey, just give right. me 15, 20% of my time. I mean, you even look at the way Gmail was built. Mm-hmm. An engineer had an idea and said, hey, give me 15% of my time. And he went and built Gmail or yeah. the first version actually, of it. Um, actually, okay. that's not what Caputo did. He, he ultimately did that. The first thing he did was he was told not to do it. And he went ahead and bought it. <laughs> did it, it anyway. <laughs> my time as long as I. So, um, but, but I also want to point out that what you just talked about, and I think marketers, I, I, I actually had a, a blinding flash of the obvious. I, I, cause it was so well stated. You want to, you want to get your higher ups to do what you want to do. Well, implement the exact same process that you're asking them to implement, um, to go out to the market, mm-hmm. understand who your persona is. Um, and Lord knows there's plenty of stuff out there. You can put the business case together. Yeah. Um, and, and I would give the question, I'm, I'm curious if you, cause you obviously ran experiments that didn't work. Um, oh yeah. A lot of oh, yeah. And I, and I think people are afraid that, that, oh my God, if I do it and it fails, um, then, I, then I'm a failure. And, and I think when you do it right and you've got that assumption going into it, cause you know, you said, will it, will it work? Will it, um, something not work? Um, but you know, kind of in that, I, you know, Thomas Edison, I didn't fail. I successfully found 2000 ways that didn't work. Yeah. You don't have to succeed if you come back and say, look, the experiment didn't work. Here's what we learned. Absolutely. Right. If, if, if you have that. And just to show everybody that, that, that Jenny walks the talk, I remember, tell me if I remember the experiment correctly. Sure. So as, as, as she said at the beginning of the show, million and a half visitors to the blog producing, you know, what was it like 60%, 70% of the lead generation came yeah. from the blog. So it was kind of important. <laughs> kind of, you know, and, and, if I remember cor- <laughs> and, and, and if I remember correctly, you guys ran a six week experiment. It was mm-hmm. two weeks of, of the same two weeks of doubling the rate of blog posts, which by the way, if those of you don't remember in 2000, I guess you probably ran the experiment in 2014. Mm -hmm. uh, You you guys were already producing multiple blogs per day in 2014. So you doubled the rate of blogs in a two week period. And then in another two week period, you cut the number of blogs that you posted in half and doubled the length of the blogs or Mm -hmm. or something. Do I remember the experiment? Yep. That's correct. And, and I still remember, because I, I remember I was doing guest blogs at the time and, and, and I got some requests about this. Hey, Kim, you know, we're, we're looking for some posts that, that go along. And I remember thinking to myself, who would have the guts to take this asset that is like the golden goose and say, hey, let's fuck with it. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, I think that like, the thing about disrupting something that's going well is you never know if you've hit your ceiling yet. Like you could be so far from your ceiling. You have no idea that you could be, you know, 
2x, 3x, 4x from where you actually could be before you max out. And that's at least at HubSpot, that's why we kept experimenting. Because we were like, this can't be it, right? You know, or if it is, we'll find out. <laughs> um, so I think that uh, per your point about experimenting, there's so many ways to try to grow any sort of business. Like, like there are a million ways. And the way I think about experimenting is just crossing off things that you don't have to go chase down later. Just one less thing for you to worry about. And you may find that something actually works really, really well for you in the process. And that's great. Then you can reallocate your time and resources to things that actually work. So. So at next view now, you know, when you were at HubSpot, you know, for all the things that we talked, and, and again, I think you did a great job of, of, of staying focused on, on, on what matters and, and it's about the content. Um, sure. but, but you also had some really clear metrics. You, mm-hmm. you, you were able to course correct. You talked about the fact that, you know, things were mature. You, you, there, there was a lot of baseline data and all, you had a huge team. I'm assuming your team at, at, at NextView isn't quite as large as your blog team was at No, at no, it's, it's, it's me. Yeah. So. <laughs> and, and so, and, and I give NextView credit too, kind of the, the idea of, of um, well, A, the idea of marketing VCs, I know they're not the only ones who do it, but you know, the yeah. idea of marketing it to begin with and, 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 that, and that same point, how do you track the effectiveness for what you do now, which is, you know, less, I mean, it kind of gets to that point of what we talked about earlier. It's less of that immediacy. It's less of that. How do you know you're on track? You're off track. How do you continue to experiment? How do you course correct? How do you, in, in, in a very conceptual, there's no playbook for it yet because no one's really done what you're doing. Yes. It is a great question. And something that I'm actually, I'm in the middle of writing a post about this right now. Um, Cause I've approached this job like a software marketer. It's my background. Um, so in software marketing, you think about your sales cycle, right? At HubSpot, our sales cycle could be three to six months, maybe. That's relatively short compared to my current sales cycle. Um, so if, you know, the, the, the product that we're selling is an actual investment, um, our customers who are entrepreneurs, um, we might know them for five years before they even start thinking about starting a company. Then they go through fundraising. <laughs> Let's say that we decide to work together and invest. Um, then it might be 10 years from the time that that investment happens to uh, the point that they exit, maybe they IPO, maybe they get sold to a different company, something like that. So that's a 15 year like time to value, <laughs> which is like good luck tying any sort of direct attribution to like, you know what, this one blog post right. is very specifically driving, you know, like, like we double the length of our blog right. posts. Yeah. <laughs> like good luck. If someone's figured it out, please let me know. Cause it's like, I, it, it's much, much harder. Um, so the way that I think about it and the way that we've definitely like come to think about it, especially in the past year is that this is less about driving specific purchase behavior and much more about building an, a wider and deeper network. And so what I mean by that is that, you know, we're bringing more and more people into the community that we're building, um, whether it's through content, maybe it's through events, maybe it's through PR, like, you know, the tactics don't really matter, but that we're broadening the number of people that we're interacting with every single day. Um, And that we're also deepening the relationships that we do have with a smaller subset of people. Um, This may end up looking like a funnel, but I think it's a little less linear than that. 
Um, so the way that we think about it, like given that that's our, our end goal, right, is to both widen and deepen the relationships that we're building, um, we think about content and any sort of marketing that we do as one specific touch point with those people. Um, there are touch points that are higher touch. So an in-person event, much higher touch. Um, a, a blog post, a little less, less of a touch, but still important. Um, maybe if someone's clapping for that blog post on Medium or, you know, liking it on a social network, that gives them like an extra point, you know, there. Um, but we're basically, we're trying to build out some sort of way of tracking these different touch points, um, both, you know, in person and digital and how those lead to building a wider and deeper network. Um, Sounds very fluffy, <laughs> sounds very, you know, complicated, and it is. Um, so that's like the long-term vision. But I do think that with that lens, we think about content very differently. Um, yes, it's important that we build a wide audience. I'm from HubSpot, that's not going away, <laughs> you know. Um, but I do think it's really important to think about, you know, the how the content that you're publishing is maybe making people interact with you, um, how they perceive you and want to talk with you. Are you approachable? Are they someone that they could envision working with for the next decade? Like that's a high, high bar. Um, so it affects, you know, how we think about the content that we're publishing. It affects how we think about content feeding in with the rest of the, the marketing strategy that we have. What do you want the buzz to be as a result of, of the marketing? Is it people are talking about NextView? Is it people are talking about the portfolio products or companies within NextView? What, who, what, what's the association that you're trying to create? Yeah, I think if the portfolio is doing well, that's the biggest win that we can ask for. Um, you know, if those entrepreneurs and those companies are getting, you know, uh, attention, then that's great for us, you know, as a byproduct. Um, so I would say it's probably a split between the two. I don't think that, you know, we should be the center of every single story um, because it, the way that we get deals referred to us often comes through our portfolio. So it is a, it is a mix. We haven't figured out the right, you know, it's 30% next to you and, you know, 70% portfolio, but it definitely is a good mix between the two. So, so I, I love what you're, what you're doing here. And, and I think the lesson for people who aren't um, investing in other companies and, and, and building that is, and I actually think this is going to be bigger. Then we're going to, we're going to turn on the engine in a second and, and, and hit the thing we started to talk about at the, at the, before we record it. So everyone get ready. What, what you're doing, I think is, is you're moving to the place of, of creating the environment for um, designated actions to take place. Mm -hmm. you know, at HubSpot, a designated action was, was a lead, a conversation, a sale, you know, for you, it's a little bit, it's a little bit more complex, but you know, um, a couple podcasts ago, we, we, we talked about a concept of uh, the, the physics concept of lift, mm -hmm. which is, uh, you know, if the velocity of, of wind above the wing is greater than the velocity below the wing, it lifts up, it creates the environment so that flight takes place. Totally. And as you think about how technology is playing and, and AI is coming in, I actually think we're, everyone is so massively focused on the sales process, the, the actual customer acquisition process, that's going to get automated to death because once you hit a certain stage you become really predictable 
Mm. The game goes to who's in position when you hit that stage. Yeah, totally. Right? How do we create that environment? How, how do we create, I mean, farmers learned this a long time ago, mm-hmm. right? They learned, let's build the field to be conducive to grow a certain type of plant. And, mm-hmm. and, and if it's not conducive and we want to grow a crop, we've got to change the field before we even think about planting that crop. And then once we plant the crop, once the field is conducive and we put the seeds in, yeah. everything else is just kind of automatic. Right. But, but the, the creativity, which it's going to be a long time before AI you know, yeah. gets to attack that. And, and, and it strikes me that that's what you're doing is you're creating that, that environment of, of interest and engagement and understanding and you're growing the market. You're going to be responsible yeah. for other people winning business, but who cares because yeah. you're going to win more business. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a really great comparison. All right. So one of your portfolio companies has a great um, philosophy. Mm -hmm. And and so what I want to talk about is the philosophy, not the company. Sure. Okay. And the philosophy is this move to conversational marketing. Mm -hmm. Now, the cynic in me can't help but say, yeah, that's how it was always supposed to be. Um, (laughs) It's kind of like account-based marketing, right? Kind yeah. of like account-based marketing. I can't help it. Yeah. Right? Um, but anyways, but, but again, it needs to be yeah. said. Conversation. Totally. So first off, why is so much marketing not conversation? Mm. Why do we need a conversational marketing movement? It, obviously, that means that it's not. Why isn't it? What's the problem? I think back to your points of like people getting over-focused on the metrics right? And over-focused on optimizing each little thing, you know, uh, what can we further automate? What can we further like remove from the sales process? And in many companies, you need to talk to a human or it's just much easier to talk to a human. Um, and you just want to talk to them in, in directly. Um, I had this happen actually this week. I got stuck in New York city because there was a blizzard here in Boston and I was supposed to take, sorry. I said, not in Boston. I know, surprise, crazy. Um, but no, I, so I, had, I was taking the train there and back and I got an, a robocall at 10.30 p.m. on Tuesday night and that was saying that my train the next day was gonna be canceled. And I just, you know, they, the only thing that they told me, they were like, you know, just call this number, let us know, you know, we'll help you reschedule. I was like, great, this will be a direct line to somebody who can get this problem fixed with me, like no problem. I dial the number. And they have set up this very intense automation system for me that (laughs) required me to say my uh, reservation number out loud. And you guys know what happens there. They're like, you're like, okay, it's D-E-0. And they're like, okay, E-F-G, right? That's what you said. And I spent 15 minutes just trying to talk to a freaking human, you know? And in, in those types of scenarios, I'm like, I just want to talk to somebody right now. I don't need to mess around with your automation system. I know that this is more efficient for you, <laughs> but it's actually super frustrating for your customer. And it makes me as your customer less want to do business with you. And so I think that's really, while these different types of movements, I think have always been like a, they seem a little like, no, duh, like, of course, you know, like every business should strive to do this by putting names behind them and putting specific conversations around them, people start to realize that these are actually super important um, and they're worthy of discussion. They're worthy of prioritizing. And by like, you have to put that name to it first. Otherwise people are like, yeah, totally. Like, of course we care about our customers. Of course we want to have conversations with them. 
I remember the first big objection that HubSpot had to deal with when they came out because um, they were inbound marketing made easy. Mm-hmm. This is probably before you were even got there and people bought HubSpot and the, the number one question that they got after someone bought HubSpot was where's the content? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, this isn't as easy as you thought. Right? Yeah, yeah, silver, silver bullet. Everybody's looking for the silver bullet. Yeah. So, so I have to admit that I'm angry. Actually, okay. I've been like really angry for about the last month, and it's been growing um, because this whole Martech sales tech world mm-hmm. is is increasingly becoming. So, you you represent um, a venture fund in in that space, so I get to yes. take it out. Don't take it personally. <laughs> <laughs> but this whole MarTech sales tech space is becoming a, a large amalgamation of snake oil salespeople who are selling um, on one basic, they're, they're building an industry on the principle of FOMO, fear of missing out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, IBM built a great business on the FUD factor, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Don't fire IBM. Mm-hmm. Well, FOMO is like the, um, and, and, you know, people are jumping on chat, they're jumping on, on AI, they're jumping on all these things, you know, for fear that they're going to miss out on this next thing. And I'm like, well, you haven't even figured out the five things ago thing and, and yeah. you're doing here. And so w- what's the role of, of the, let me not change, let me change the question. What role should the MarTech and sales tech space play as they're trying to build their product? God, they've got something to sell and they got numbers that they have to hit. Yeah. But they're out there selling the, the, the story on the basis of, and, and this is not just, you know, drift, obviously is conversational marketing. This is not just about drift. This is the entire yeah. industry yeah. Buy my product and the problem is solved and people are buying the product and you go on and let's face it. How much chat have you been on recently? Like in the last month, how much chat have you been on? Um, call it five or six different companies. I don't know what your experience has been. I've actually been, as I've been getting angry about this and thinking and working through a couple of things, chat sucks today. I mean, yeah. it's, it's just bad. Doug, a lot of it is exactly what Jenny said a moment ago, which was these large companies implemented automated phone call, like I call into Verizon, I call into AT&T <laughs> and it's like dial here. And it's like, no, no, no. And I, the next thing you know, I find myself just pressing the zero button and they don't even, that doesn't yeah. work anymore. That doesn't even work. Right. Right. I know. To get to, to get You're to like, live operator. <laughs> and so that's where I see some of this chat or conversational marketing going, which is like just very, very bad, not thought out type messaging. And I was on a panel yesterday with, um, a, at a Grow Up with HubSpot event. And this woman asked, hey, should we implement chat? And I said, well, I don't know. Are you, are, are you? willing to invest the time because just mm-hmm. by throwing chat on your website isn't going to change anything. In fact, it will probably build a worse experience than just throwing it on your website. You have to invest in it. And, and I don't, and I don't mean to pick on just chat because, because we can no, talk no, no, about, yeah, right. Emails is talk about sales enablement yep. tools around email, email templates, yep. email tracking, yep. Absolutely. Um, yeah. auto dialers, um, document stuff. And, 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 yep. and so, and, and, and so my question is that, that what role does, does, the, does the sales and MarTech space need to play in, in not just selling the product, which gets you a Kit Bodner, um, your old boss, um, yeah. marketers fuck everything up, 
right? Yep. We take a good thing and we just, um, and, and then the thing that's frustrating about it is not, not only do we, do we hurt each other and create a lot of negative, um, a lot of negative equity, we make it harder for everybody else who, who might be doing it right to actually make the thing work, which frankly, in my opinion, puts us all more susceptible for Amazon to yeah. take over everything because yeah. people just end up throwing up their hands. So, so where does this MarTech and sales tech, let's get, you know, I know we can't do anything about it, but what, what's their role in, in being able to tell the real story about this product enables this to happen, but, but here's what has to happen to actually make that work. What, what's their role in this? I think that's a good question because per your point before, I think a lot of marketers are super busy <laughs> and looking for easy shortcuts. And the thing is, is like buying this software, I think can help you tremendously. It, it really does. And I'm not just saying that as an ex-hub spotter, like I've, I've seen the gamut of, of how technology can, can help and also how it can hurt. Um, and the right technology with the right strategy applied can actually save you a ton of time and money. Um, but I do think that these companies, I, I wish that more of them talked about the nuances of what happens after you purchase, right? It's not a like, oh, you just turn this on and boom, you get 10x the leads. It's much more like it comes back to what we've been talking about the whole time, which is knowing your customer really, really, really well, and then running experiments to see what works, what doesn't, and then cutting out the things that don't work. But that takes time. Like those take so much time when you're hitting like revenue targets month over month. If you're a startup, you know, you could be out of business in six months. You know, you're looking for that something to help you give a leg up. Um, so I, un I think I understand it from all angles there, but I do think um, I would love for more marketing and sales tech to talk through that nuance there because I think people would actually be pretty receptive to it. It, it's hard. It, it, it's hard no matter what you do. And, and what the tech does is it makes it doable. Like, yes. Like, yeah. like chat makes it possible to do things. It's, it's, it's tremendous. Again, for the right, you know, there, there's yeah. also this play where everyone, you know, everyone who says, I want, by the way, I want everyone to stop saying game changer unless it <laughs> changes the game. <laughs> right. Like, like if it's the same game, it's not a game changer. Um, but you know, it, 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 it's also not, you know, this, instead of that, it's, it's this and that. Yeah. Um, but also it, it's hard work. It, it, it's figure out what are the key things that you're going to do and focus on that. You, you talked about that earlier, but everyone's running out there and saying easy. And, and the thing that actually scares me just to put it on the record is it, yeah. I was at Merrill Lynch when we uh, hit the housing crisis. Oh, Oof. I'm sorry. No, I was at Merrill Lynch when we hit the, the, the um, boy, I'm getting old. I can't even remember anything. I was at Merrill Lynch when, um, with the, internet bubble. Then I had an independent financial advisory when we hit the, uh, when we hit the financial crisis. So I, uh, the, you've seen the, the scary you've seen movie. <laughs> yeah. Well, the scariest thing is like, I actually understood what was going on. I actually wish I didn't under, it wouldn't have been anywhere near as scary if I hadn't actually understood what was going on. Yeah. Um, and, and the problem was, and you know, um, I, I think it's Tom Friedman who says, if you jump off of an 80 story building, you can convince yourself you're flying for the first 79 floors. Oh, um, that's, and, that's and, dark. <laughs> well, but, but so, so what, what, sorry, what, what happened was in, in, in the housing crisis, it was, you know, more, 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 better, 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 better. Um, oh, wow. This is great. They, they, you know, analysts started talking about riskless risk and things like that. Yeah. And so there's, there's all this noise coming out about easy, 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 buy, you know, all, all this stuff is happening. And 
Yeah, we're driving these short-term numbers, right? Because we have to. And, and yeah, it's a lot easier to sell it if we say it's easy than if it's hard. Yeah. Um, but all the, so many of the exact same things in the environment that existed in the housing, in the financial and housing crisis are happening here. Um, mm -hmm. And, and with, with some tremendous disruption around technology co coming down the play, someone has to have some responsibility to think about the fact that it's not just this quarter's or this year's numbers that matter. Are, yeah. are we going to be able to play this game five years from now, 10 years from now, or we're all going to get wiped out? Not, not just the companies that bought the products, but the products themselves. And it's, you know, we, we see it happening in the internet space. There's basically three or four yeah. players now. If you don't play with them, you don't. And, and right. um, so I'll get off my soapbox. But that's, that's the thing that scares me. And, yeah. and, um, and I think content can help solve that. So I don't know. Any yeah. thoughts on that? Well, I went I, off on a team. No, I think, I think more and more marketers should be looking to history. Like this is not the first time, like this is not, though there are many new technologies, like this is not new in how like, you know, certain businesses consolidate and then own the market. Like this, this has happened before. It's going to happen again. It's going to happen again and again. And uh, I think more people should pay attention to how history unfolds um, because you can, uh, my, one of my colleagues here, um, Lee Hauer often will say, history doesn't repeat, it rhymes. I love, like, I love that. And I think more and more people would uh, do much better if they could see what the movie was before. You know what hasn't changed as you bring it up? I realize. So as everything has changed, you know what hasn't changed? What? The fundamentals. Yeah, that's true. What's changed is all the advanced stuff. The, four, the 301, 401, 501 classes, if you will, they've changed. Yeah. They're, they're radically different. But you know what? Understand who your customer is. Mm -hmm. you know, figure out, be re, you know, the, the basic blocking and tackling fundamentals are the key. And if yeah. you try to skip that and, and buy the latest, greatest thing, it, 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 it's not going to get you anywhere. Totally agree. Already, Ellen's going to give us uh, some exclamation points in a minute. Uh, Jenny, any, any parting thoughts um, in terms of, you know, what advice would you give that, that upstart company, that content marketer? Um, what should they be doing over the next 12 to 18 months to make sure that they're more relevant then than they are today? Um, I would recommend experimenting. And the only way to do that is to, you know, figure out what kind of things you should be trying make a long, long list. Like I'm talking like 20, 30 ideas, brainstorm, figure out the things that, you know, think about a year from now, like what will you wish you had done? What could get you not just, you know, 100% growth, but like 200, 300%. Um, do you need to change things very drastically? Um, think through that. Think through all the ways that you could validate that hypothesis and then start running them. Take 10% of your time and start picking them off month by month. And a year from now, you'll be much smarter, even if all of those things that you did didn't work. Um, I think it's so important to have that as part of your overall content strategy, because if you just keep doing the same thing over and over and over again, you're going to find a year later, it's like the Titanic heading towards an iceberg. And you're like, I can't write it. I can't move it. I can't move it. If we had just taken like tiny little turns, then maybe we would be in a better place. Um, so experiment, experiment, experiment. This is so important for startups. It's so important for growing companies and huge companies. Um, I think more people should be doing it. 
producer I'm Alan, welcome. that's a great that's a great point. Um, make sure that we we're going to do a blog post or something on how to plan and run some experiments to to back that up, and we'll pull from this. And I'll add to what you said, and you tell me if you agree with this or not as as our parting thought for all the marketers out there. Um, I would go so far as to say, you know, Jenny said, temp, take 10% of your time. And if you took 10% of your time, even if your boss said you can't do this, if you, could t- if you took 10% of your time to experiment at your company, you could make that your side thing. Mm-hmm. And even if it didn't work, here's what I promise you. If you do that for six to 12 months, I promise you that you will have more companies that will open up the doors and mm-hmm. give you the playing field to experiment if you do that and you will be more marketable and you will be more valuable and you'll outgrow your company rather than your company outgrowing you. Absolutely. That's literally four hours a week. If you're working for it, 40 hours, four hours, one day after Monday, Tuesday, or one hour after Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. That's it. I love it, Jenny. I love it. Jenny, thank you so much. This was a, a tremendous amount of fun. I, I could keep yeah. going for, for another couple of hours, but I imagine you probably have some things that you got to get to. You got portfolio companies trying to, trying to take over the world. So thank this you. This was wonderful. Absolutely. My pleasure. This was great. Thank you. So Jenny, much. Awesome. Really, uh, really appreciate the time. Great to meet you. Um, if you're okay, I'd, I'd, at some point I might try to reach out and pick your brain on a couple of things. So yeah, please do. Always love doing that. Awesome. All right. Cool. We're good. By the cool. way, Mike C, Mike C, I just want to go on the record. We were talking about, can you point out a market?